0: Hi, uh, this is Gary Meese with the Case Against. Back again with uh, another in my series on the uh, occult crime book by William Lee William Edward Lee Dubois. I'm going to read a. Uh, chapter he calls Magic in Theory and Practice, which sounds an awful lot like a title by Aleister Crowley. I'm sure that's no coincidence. Uh, He pulls out uh, a quote in the chapter. Let me explain what this book is. This book was Uh, A fairly standard text used by law enforcement back in the 80s and 90s to identify occult crimes and the name of the book is Occult Crime Detection Investigation and Verification. It was really not intended for general the general public it was for law enforcement professionals. Mr. Dubois apparently found a need or police and other law enforcement officials to uh, be educated in what to look for in terms of occult crimes. Uh, as we know, this is a very controversial subject uh, because to some extent, the whole idea of occult crime has been folded into what were essentially non occult non cult non crimes though there was there were some crimes involved in the satanic panic uh hysteria that went on over daycare centers in the in the early to mid eighties and it continued on for some time after that but that seems to be worth highlight is most notably McMartin in California now the West Memphis three case gets also also generally tends to get folded into the idea that it's part of the satanic panic craze. And I I know I'm repeating myself at times um, with these points, but because the counterpoints are repeated so often, I feel compelled to repeat once again that the murders of Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, Stevie Branch on May fifth, 1993, in West Memphis, Arkansas, by Damian Eccles, Jesse Miskelly Jr., and Jason Baldwin have absolutely no relation to uh, the kind of crimes that were being investigated in the satanic panic uh, hysteria that went on. In many cases, in none of those cases were, were any children killed. Uh, there, it was usually in a setting that was understood to be a place for children, such as a daycare center. Um, and that, you know, uh, there's a, and I'll mention again in the book, Witch Hunt Narrative, that goes into great, great depth with these various uh, alleged crimes and makes the point that this hysteria actually did cover up, in a sense, real crimes, which was, there was, in some cases, there was some sexual abuse of children going on, and that somehow got clouded over with all this hoopla about, you know, ritual, uh, uh, satanic rituals and uh, the, the crazy stories that these little kids came up with you know with underground tunnels and babies being chopped up etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, you get a feel for what some of this must have been like if you if you'll sit through the mini and you can watch videotapes are available there were but avail- I haven't checked lately but they were available on YouTube where well, you can watch little Aaron Hutchison, who was a friend of the three dead boys, being interviewed by police. And he manages to come up with some pretty wild tales himself. Uh, and he's a boy of normal intelligence of eight years old. Compare his stories to the stories told, very consistent confessions with I would say they're very consistent in the major details, and they often vary quite a bit in the lesser details but the major details who who was involved, what was done to the boys, where it occurred uh um, how they went about the killings and and quite a bit of the circumstances around that from Jesse mukelly jr in his confession that prompted the arrest and the, the several confessions he gave after his conviction that included uh, one that where he confessed to his uh, he confessed to some, sta- some uh, deputies that were transporting to prison he confessed to his defense attorney with his hand on a Bible he confessed twice to prosecutors once in the presence of his defense attorneys begging him not to do what he was about to do, which is tell his story once again. And Jesse Miskelly went ahead and did it and gave a great deal of detail. And none of it had the fantasy quality that you'll hear in the stories from Aaron Hutchison. So, and supposedly people talk as if, Jesse Miskelly Jr. is the mind of a six-year-old. Well, his so-called six-year-old mind is considerably more mature than Aaron's eight-year-old mind. And I don't think Aaron was grossly immature for his age. Uh, he lived in some pretty fraught domestic circumstances. His mother was had significant problems with uh, drinking and drugs and a lot of resulting chaos Uh, but uh, again that's unfortunately that's not (coughs) that unusual unfortunately that's not that unusual and Jesse lived under even more chaotic circumstances, I would say. Um, It's a bit of a judgment there, but he had really big problems with his home life. Um, They have a quote that he pulled out, I was about to get to before I got into this, and they use this book in the West Memphis Three investigation as a partial guide because they seem to see... There was some ritualistic aspects to the crimes, and they, the officers felt that they needed to bone up on the subject. None of them were uh, experts on uh, the subject of occult crime. Jerry Driver, who was a juvenile detention officer, had uh, an interest in this, but he wasn't specifically attached to... Uh, investigations by the West Memphis Police Department. Uh, I'm going to quote from The Greater Key of Solomon, translated into English by S. Liddell McGregor Mathers in 1914. Uh, this is a widely acknowledged occult text. Damien Eccles has alluded to it in his Numerous talks on, on YouTube about his magical practices. And I, I think it relates quite a bit to aspects of this crime. Here we go. The places best fitted for exercising and accomplishing magical arts and operations are those which are concealed, removed, and separated from the habitation of, habitations of men. Wherefore, desolate and uninhabited regions, regions are most appropriate, such as the borders of lakes, forests, dark and obscure places, old and deserted houses, where there rarely and scarce ever men do come, mountains, caves, caverns, grottoes, gardens, orchards, but best of all are crossroads, and where four roads meet during the depth and silence of night." Now, this relates quite a bit to the actual scene of the murders. I venture to say that the fact that that site is near one of the major crossroads in the United States probably played no role at all in, in defining defining where the, these murders were going to take place. but it is an interesting confluence of circumstance and I you know I, I don't want to overread things into uh, the setting and the time and so forth uh, when these killings occurred. however, uh, I don't want to ignore those factors either. Uh, there was a reason why Damien Eccles had decided he wanted to go over to West Memphis and he told they told Jesse Moskelly they would go up to beat up some boys. obviously they had bigger plans than that but um, there was a reason why Damien Eccles picked this particular day may fifth nineteen ninety three uh And is it a a total coincidence that May May 5th is the traditional date for Old Beltane, one of the four major holidays of the magical season, the witch's season? Maybe it is quite a coincidence though, but maybe it is. Why did he pick that particular day? Why did he pick an evening to go over there when the full moon would be rising? It went into a full moon that evening. Sunrise and sunset were within minutes of each other and within minutes of when the killings occurred, if not totally... Uh, coinciding exactly with it, because we don't know the exact times, and I think probably the the killings were over with, based on Muskelly's confessions, I have every reason to think that the killings were over with before sunset, before moonrise. Close enough to count, though. Um, The woods, so-called Robin Hood Hills, it's what it was you know five acres or so really a fairly small plot and there are other wooded areas around there uh, particularly across the the, 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 across the interstates on the other side there was there's quite a bit of woods over there at least there was haven't been to West Memphis since November 2019 but uh, I don't recall, I, as I recall, the woods were all still over there. Uh, it's quite possible some, some construction's gone on since then, but there were certainly woods there back in 1993, and there were woods, woods uh, where the boys were killed on the south side of the interstate as well at that time. Uh, those woods have since been taken down. They were still pretty well grown up again certainly not in a woods but certainly uh heavily uh, heavy level of vegetation on that particular plot the last time i was there and i have not been as i say maybe it's been cleared again uh they could have a big shiny hotel on the side for all i know it is on the service road service roads run uh, along the uh, interstate uh, in West Memphis, from parallel to the interstates, with uh, exits every, you know, several hundred yards, maybe every thousand yards or so, uh, so you can get in, off the interstate and into and and onto the service road and vice versa. Uh, it's intended to to be a place. The areas along the interstate are intended to be a place for uh, businesses and developments. Uh, and there are some, uh, some places it's really fairly highly developed uh, where Damien Eccles, uh, the Walmart that Damien Eccles uh, frequented uh, constantly is is, uh, was over, it's moved since, it's, st- it's still in the service road, but it was cl- over closer to Missouri Avenue, closer to Shore Estates Trail Park, where Jason Baldwin lived, and the, what, the, uh, then the Walmart is now, and, uh, last I checked, there was a grocery store in there, and I, I, I wish I could say for sure it was Kroger but I'm 90% sure it's a Kroger store and of course that that could have changed in you know a couple of years I'm not even sure I went over that way the last time I didn't go that far into up and down the service road I had no particular reason I wasn't going to Walmart <laughs> that might be the only reason I'd go down that way unless it was, just wanted to check out the sites one more time which I usually do did not check the side of the grocery store to see if anything had changed um, so we have these woods that are you know they're woodsy you know they're they're right next to this busy twenty four hour uh, truck wash which truck stop uh, along a a joined Highway of interstate forty and interstate fifty five for a couple of miles through West Memphis uh, just a few hundred uh, not even a few hundred feet probably the 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 northern edge of the woods northern boundary is perhaps uh hundred feet or was perhaps a hundred feet. 150 feet probably not that that probably not 150 feet probably more like 100 feet so I'm, I'm kind of a poor judge about width of width of roads. but basically you're talking about uh, a barrier and a bit of a median with a barrier along between the service road and the interstate this two-lane service road itself uh, uh, like a ditch area there you know, a bank, a ditch, and then the woods would have started on the other side of that. So you probably have a good idea. You could probably picture that in your head. You've seen enough woods along the side of the road that you can probably figure out just how close it was. It's quite close, but it was secluded. It was almost rural in the sense that you know, you if when you were in the woods you're really away from everything you know I've, I've driven around on the other side of the interstate uh, curiosity and uh, I had some actually I had some professional reasons for being over there there was uh, some uh, a large number of dogs have been found uh, killed over there probably uh, you know, they do, they used to get rid of greyhounds, and there is dog fighting in the area, it's quite possible that that's where they were disposing of the dogs, but there had been a pond over there, and the dogs were in the pond, it was just a grotesque, horrible scene, but those woods over there, it was like, you know, you get down a couple hundred feet off the, the service road, and you're, it's like you're, Ten miles out in the country, there's nothing going on. the The interstate is noisy, and you could you could hear it quite quite some distances. I think most people could easily imagine just based on their own experience. And so the woods, uh, the Robin Hood Hills Woods, would have been fairly noisy in, in terms of just general ambience. Uh, also. Uh, There was a significant bank down into the little irrigation canal, almost more of a ditch where the boys were found that would have provided a a sound barrier to some extent for their screams. So it was really perfect for somebody who was intent upon torturing small children. It was great for that, I'm sure, you know, Damien said he was happy, the killer would have been happy with the results of the crime, and I'm certain he was happy with the way, uh, with the way the setting worked to his purposes so well, you know, but that, that particular area, it's neither, it's not, it's not town, it's not country, nobody lives there, but people live close by, it's a place apart, it's liminal, it's at the limits and that is where occult practice practitioners particularly prefer to practice is in liminal spots. Uh, I will mention again there's crossroads there. there's other some other smaller but significant crossroads around there as well uh, but it's certainly not on an exact crossroad but if you look you know, on an aerial map, it's not far at all from the the, the intersect the intersecting of Interstate 55 and I-40. Though that doesn't run, it doesn't really form a cross. It forms a uh, an upside-down T, so to speak. And, and 55 goes north toward Chicago and 40 goes east, west, all across the country, as many of you probably know. So it's not really a crossroads, but it is is—it is a crossroads in, in a certain sense. It's just not technically, it doesn't form a cross. And there's some smaller highways there that also would, you know, form uh, a cross. But again, I don't want to dwell too. I've already dwelled more than I really meant to on that particular aspect of it. Anyway, I thought I thought that was interesting, and I, I think these police officers—probably uh, not ge- a lot of geniuses in the pack—but uh, quite. A, they, it's pretty evident that several of them are quite intelligent, and they sort of picked up on the fact that this place, from a magical practitioners standpoint would have been perfect for the kind of crimes committed if indeed the intent was an occult crime. Now I'm going to read what Mr. Dubois has to say about magic. And uh, I think uh, most magical practitioners would probably agree with a great deal of it and probably vehemently deny aspects of it, particularly as it relates to crime and law enforcement. And of course, there's all sorts of competing camps there. Um, you know, you got, most obviously you got Wiccans, and you've got Satanists, and there's all sorts of different flavors of those, and then there, there are people who are just practicing, just practicing some some form of hermeticism and, Various schools or theories. Uh, you know, it's it's not an uh, it's not uh, the kind of practice that is you know sta- one standard for all. I mean, as many diverse sects as there are in Christianity, most of them have quite a bit of convergence on certain basic things, such as the text and some basics of belief. Uh, much less so I would say in the occult communities and and some of this is going to seem really basic and simple but I'll go into it. Uh, Occultists spell magic, M-A-G-I-C-K, magic with a K signifies true power whereas magic with a C signifies sleight of hand illusion or stage magic this book is concerned only with magic with a K and then he gives these definitions white magic magical operations intended to help a third party gray magic magical operations undertaken for personal gain which is what Damien Eccles said he practiced black magic, destructive magic intended to harm a third party, which is what his old girlfriend Deanna Holcomb said that she practiced and that Damien also practiced. Uh, And he defines natural magic, magic that taps into the power within people and natural objects, and ceremonial magic, magic that taps into the power of supernatural entities. And I think those who are following Damian Eccles on social media will take note that he has become noted as a ceremonial magician. He's constantly talking about invoking uh, so-called angels and uh, constantly he's constantly talking about other deities of one stripe or another. Uh, you know, he, I, he feels free to draw upon whatever, what, whatever mythology he, uh, feels best suits his thesis for the day or whatever his whim is. And he, I don't think he's that unusual as far as occult uh, cult practitioners, uh, to those who, uh, back to the text, to, to those who believe in it, he's not that different in terms of those particular kinds of beliefs and practices. He's quite a different character, and let's hope, than just about any other ceremonial magician. But perhaps not. To those who believe in it, magic is a spiritual force supernatural force that can cause change in the physical world. It deals with power, the power to change and control people, animals, objects, time, or fate itself. Occultists see magic as a belief system, an art, a science, and a way of life. To the occultist, magic can be a tool or a weapon. Initially difficult to learn, once mastered, magic is seen as easy to use and unlimited in power. Belief in the supernatural may seem incompatible with our high-tech world, but the clear fact is that in an age of computers and satellites, a large percentage of the population believes in magic. Magic promises believers instant solutions to every problem, and this fits in well with our instant gratification culture. Those who practice occult religions in particular believe in magic so strongly that it affects the way they act and interact with others. In fact, magic is so intertwined with occult religions that no occult crime can be solved, no motive understood, and no case closed unless the investigating officer has a solid grasp of magical belief systems. And this gets to the point that if you don't understand Magical beliefs and practices, and you look at something like the crime scene, you might find it strange, but you won't have any uh scaffolding under on, on which to hang uh an understanding of you know build an edifice of understanding of what could have actually gone on there uh which it was it wasn't an occult crime. Does Damien do anything that's not related to the occult? Is, are these timings of full moon, old Beltane, uh, the bindings, the threefold death, are, are those things coincidental? I suggest not. However conscious Damien was is another question of of these particular things, but I I, I think it's very clear that he consciously and unconsciously is driven by uh, a deep need to obtain power through magical means back to the text officers may or may not personally believe in magic but it is absolutely critical that they understand those who do because there is a distinct relationship between magic and crime and I'm sure a lot of practitioners would disagree with that magic to those who believe magic is neither good nor evil it is seen as raw power like electricity electricity is beneficial when it is controlled and used for light and heat Malicious when used with evil intent, such as the classic radio-in-the-bathtub murder, and dangerous when it is wild and free in the form of lightning or high-voltage power lines downed in a storm. Magic works the same way. It can be good, evil, or dangerous, depending on its use. Occultists believe that magic is beneficial when used to help or heal, malicious when used to hurt or destroy, and dangerous when used by amateurs who cannot control it. Within the occult community, magic is broken into the classifications of white, gray, and black. White magic is magic cast solely to help others. Examples include weather magic to bring rain to parched farmland, healing magic to cure the sick, or protective magic to guard the home. Grey magic is magic undertaken for personal gain that does not harm others. Examples include self-empowerment magic to increase intelligence or sex appeal, advancement magic to get a promotion at work, or wealth magic to win the lotto. Black magic is magic intended to do actual harm to others. It is used for revenge, to right perceived wrongs, or to eliminate competition. Examples include malicious magic to cause sickness, destructive magic to bring on financial ruin, or even lethal magic to cause the death of another. Occultists believe in the threefold law of magic, which states that whatever kind of magic is cast will return to the operator three times as strong. Damien Eccles stated that in almost exactly those words. Thus, they believe that focusing on white magic will improve the quality of their lives while practicing black magic will bring them to run. Accordingly, most occultists regard black magic as too dangerous to use on a regular basis. However, black magic is viewed as the most potent of the three and most practitioners, in spite of the ramifications, engage in occasional use of black magic. I don't know, I expect there to be a Crowd of deniers out there about that, but doesn't seem, it seems like it's likely to be true. I don't know how you would prove that, but it seem, doesn't seem unlikely. Satanists, on the other hand, claim that black magic is the only true power, and they use it extensively. They do not consider it hazardous. They believe, in fact, that one of the fringe benefits of worshipping on the dark side is immunity from harm. It is important for officers to understand that black magic and criminal magic are not the same thing. Black magic, despite its negative goals, is not necessarily criminal. If a black magic operation is carried out without breaking the law, it is entirely legal, even if the final goal of the operation is lethal. There are two primary ways for occultists to tap into magical power, by using natural magic or by using ceremonial magic we explain natural magic here natural magic taps into the power within people and natural objects many natural objects are seen as reservoirs of power to extend the electricity analogy these objects serve as batteries examples include natural crystals candles herbs gemstones living plants and rocks with unusual shapes in other words the kind of things that people suggest were missing from the scene of the West Memphis crime and even Damian Eccles, I'm sure he was snickering in his head as he was throwing out there but he mentioned some of these kind of objects that should be seen at the scene of a magical operation as we're going to see that's not necessarily the case uh, natural magic is per- practiced by a considerable number of Americans it is used by new age groups new pagans neo-pagans Shamanist, various Power of the Earth groups, and followers of Native American religions. Natural magic is a non-criminal practice, and the groups that use it represent the fastest-growing religious groups in the United States today. This was written 30-something years ago, so it may not be true anymore. I don't know what the stats are on that, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was true still natural magic can be either an individual or group practice although group practice is slightly more common modern natural magic like modern america is of mixed ancestry modern natural magic in our country is made up of bits and pieces of magical beliefs taken from different cultures around the world people interested in natural magic are avid readers there are currently thousands of books available on different types of magic one mail order occult book catalog lists 24 pages in small print of new titles. And just imagine 30 something years later, what a wealth of titles there are now, particularly with Amazon and self publishing there to supply endless titles promising all sorts of things through the practice of magic. Damien Eccles has put out a couple of books on magical practices and uh, got quite a bit of publicity with the first one uh, and I'm sure he's making he's making some money off the books I wouldn't hazard a guess how much but you know he's been making some money off the books. Uh, I noticed he gets knocked off the bestseller list the occult on the occult uh, on the list fairly quickly in other words and I haven't checked in the last month or two but his books are not necessarily the best sellers among magical practitioners but there seem to be steady sellers which isn't very appealing to an author the appeal of natural magic is that it is simple and easy to use no special tools are needed magical operations can be done at any time any place indoors or outdoors outdoor locations are preferred if available as natural magic is attuned to nature however however city dwellers are often forced to practice indoors due to the unavailability unavailability of outdoor locations and modern natural magic has adapted to city life. In the practice of natural magic the power of natural objects is accessed by using chants or spells which are a form of verbal magic. The words of a chant or spell have a rhythm that helps build up energy or power. In fact the very words themselves are believed to have power. The child's rhyme, Rain, Rain, Go Away, Come Again Some Other Day, was originally a natural magic spell. Natural magic operations can also include dancing, meditation, candle burning, and even sex. <clears throat> Ceremonial magic, also called high magic, is of greater interest to law enforcement officers than natural magic because. Certain types of ceremonial magic require criminal acts. Unlike natural magic, which uses power within people and natural objects, ceremonial magic uses the power of demons and other supernatural entities. Let me, let me just say right here that uh, Damien Eccles at one point and uh, all the t- many times he was Interviewed by mental health professionals in the year, and he was interviewed quite a bit afterward too, but in the year leading up to uh, uh, his arrest for these murders, uh, describes himself at one point as, as a demonologist. Uh, and it does seem that he, and he describes trafficking with various disarm- canate can- disarcanic, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that word because I've really heard it spoken. Discarnate. I got it out. Discarnate entities. He describes dealing with them in various ways. Or they're plaguing him in some cases, such as a spirit that followed him from Oregon of a dead woman that followed him from Oregon to Arkansas that he was certain was after him. Uh, This type of magic is called ceremonial magic rather than supernatural magic because calling up a demon requires a complex ceremony. Most of the ceremonies for calling demons were recorded in the Middle Ages in Europe in books called grimoires. Reprints of these medieval books are readily available in the United States today. There are dozens of different grimoires, but... The most common and most significant are a pair of books used together called the Greater and Lesser Keys of Solomon. Damien Eccles uses these books, by the way. The Greater Key provides the details of how and when to call demons, and the Lesser Key provides a list of demons that can be called. The Grimoire set out exact standards for every aspect of each ceremony, including ritual, chamber layout, time of day, day of the week. Clothes of the operator, equipment of the operator, construction of the equipment, details of the ceremony, and even the operator's personal behavior. As we can see, time of day and uh, day of the week are important factors. Uh, Time of day, uh, particularly uh, early evening in May in West Memphis, Arkansas is a time where, you know, it's twice basically the boys were killed as twilight was coming on. The sun was setting, it was dark in the woods, uh, it was neither night nor day. Ritual baths and fasting may be required, and some grimoires state that the operator must abstain from sexual relations of any kind for a month in advance of the ceremony. I would be very doubtful if Damien Eccles did all this preparation for what went on there, assuming he even prepared it all, or if he thought it through that closely. He may have been driven, I will say again, he may have just been driven by his unconscious wants and needs and something that was a de facto occult, occult crime. Uh, even though he didn't have some of the accouterments that uh, that are described here, certainly there wasn't a chamber. He he was wearing clothes that he wore all the time, apparently black clothes. Uh, no special equipment was there beyond a knife to cut up the boys. And uh, he carried he was carrying a staff. He carved some things in so. You know he had some equipment uh, but maybe not uh, as uh, certainly not as much equipment as this book is describing the actual ceremony for all types of ceremonial magic consists of three distinct steps summoning binding and banishing summoning is the calling of the specific entity desired supernatural entities especially demons are believed to be specialists which demon the operator calls depends on what he wants to accomplish Uh, damien's got the converse of this particularly in a recent book on angels and archangels and how to summon them and that he's he's summoning these entities and he calls them angels And uh, they have specific purposes, specific qualities, and you're supposed to keep that in mind as you're performing these suggested ceremonies. To call a demon, the operator uses a chant for the grimoire, together with the demon's personal symbol called a sigil. The chants are sometimes in English, sometimes in ancient tongues. In some cases, the operator understands what he's saying, and in other cases, he merely repeats by rote. Both the chants and the sigils are recorded in the grimoires. If field officers find a sigil at a crime scene, they can positively identify which demon was called because each Demon's sigil was, is unique. Once the demon's sigil is identified, the demon's specialty is revealed and the officers can then determine the purpose or motive of the ceremony. Uh, needless to say, we know of no sigils found at the crime scene. And he provides a complete field guide for identifying sigils in this book. Binding the second step of the ceremony is the process used to trap the demon and force it to obey the operator. This is accomplished by a verbal spell. The binding spell attempts to force the demon to comply with the operator's wishes by threatening to use magic against the demon. The third step, banishing, is also a verbal spell and is used to send the demon back from whence it came and to bar it from uninvited return. According to occult belief, ceremonial magic is dangerous because if everything isn't done exactly right, the operator will not be able to control the demon once it has been summoned. Occultists believe that if control is lost, the demon may turn on the operator and will either kill him or destroy his mind. There is evidence that while grimoires properly record how to call and bind demons, they do not give the proper methods of banishing them. Occultists believe that this is an occult booby trap intended to eliminate those who are not properly trained in the occult arts, thus keeping the magical power in the hands of the initiated. Ceremonial magic is usually practiced alone or by an operator and two assistants. Indoor locations are preferred. Obviously, we're talking about an outdoor operation, but uh, we do have an operator and two assistants. Little little, uh, Jesse and little Jason. A useful analogy to clarify ceremonial magic procedures is to compare ceremonial magic to computer operation. Most Most Americans can successfully operate computers but few really understand what is happening inside those chips. It doesn't matter to the users how the computer works so long as they get results. It is the same with ceremonial magic. The operators really don't understand how it works but take it for granted that a certain action will always get a certain result. The non English chants used for calling demons are like bizarre computer commands. The operator doesn't necessarily understand the computer commands, but the computer does. All computer operators have to do is enter the commands properly. The same is true of ceremonial magic. Operators may not know what they are saying, but they believe that the demons will understand them if the spells are spoken properly. Computers and ceremonial magic have one final thing in common. mistake of any kind on the part of the operator has disastrous results. We get into satanic magic. While most forms of ceremonial magic are non-criminal, satanic magic is a sub-form of ceremonial magic that is often criminal. It is in the binding stage that the significant difference between conventional ceremonial magic and satanic magic is evidence. evident. Rather than threatening the demon of compliance as in ceremonial magic, Satanic magic bribes the demon to gain its voluntary compliance with the operator's wishes. The bribe is an offering, and the traditional offering to a demon is blood. Let that sink in. The blood, and by the way, Damien drank blood as a means of obtaining power. He saw, saw, as far as he was concerned, he saw blood as a source of tremendous psychic, spiritual, occult power. The blood may be either animal or human, and the choice depends on the importance of the demon being called. The Grimoires establish a rigid chain of command within the ranks of the demons. Occultists never go higher in the command structure than they need to go in order to accomplish their goal. The higher in the command structure the occultist goes, the harder it is to summon the demon, the higher price for the demon's appearance, and the harder it is to control the demon. The details of satanic rituals vary with different types of satanists, and these details are provided as part of the profile of each category of satanists further back in the book. However, certain elements of satanic rituals are universal to all types of satanists. Satanic magic is a group practice typically in an indoor location at night rituals are performed by candlelight all the candles are black except one which is white the white candle symbolizes the power of God overwhelmed been surrounded by the powers of darkness obviously that has no relation to the crime Uh, Satanists use a large number of tools and symbolic items in their rituals and their ritual chambers are heavily decorated with satanic symbols satanic ceremonies bear a closer resemblance to christian ceremonies than they do to other magical rites in fact satanic rituals are often modified catholic masses now as we know damien Eccles, or maybe some most of you probably don't know because well maybe you do if you're listening to this Well, a lot of supporters really don't know anything about the case except what they saw in a movie. But even a little bit of study will tell you that uh, Damien Echols uh, studied Catholicism quite closely and had thought he'd won the confidence of the priest, I think. Uh, The priest always had his doubts about Damien. Apparently, and uh, his understanding was that sometimes occultists gain the comp attempt to gain the confidence of priests in order to gain gain access to various religious uh, articles, such as the host or cup or wine, so forth. And we're talking specifically Catholicism there. I doubt if an occultist hanging around a Baptist church would find much use for broken up saltine crackers and Welch's grape juice. Bogus magic. Bogus bogus magic is mail order magic, magic that comes in kits. The kits contain all the ingredients needed to perform a magical operation including directions. There is a kit available for virtually every purpose imaginable. These kits include such unorthodox ingredients as aerosol sprays. Examples include double-fast luck spray, jinx-removing spray, and keep-away-evil spray. Kits are regarded as nonsense by serious practitioners of magic. If officers find kits in a raid, they can be certain that the suspects have a poorly developed belief in magic and are not serious practitioners. And I think quite a few of us, I know I've seen a a number of occasions. Of course, I was living in Memphis where this sort of thing pops up here and there in stores. But I would see double fast luck spray, uh, jinx removing spray, uh, candles that attracted love, etc., etc. This would be the sort of thing that he's calling bogus magic. And I don't really see much evidence that Damien Eccles was into bogus magic as it's defined here. I think probably everything he's involved with is bogus on some level, but not the way it's defined here. Now we get into blood sacrifice. For the occultist, blood contains the life force, the magical power of any living thing. A blood sacrifice serves a logical purpose to the criminal occultist. A killing during a ceremony pays homage to powerful entities and gives all the participants power. As the blood spills, the power in the blood transfers to any living object that comes into contact with it. This is the reason for the blood revel practiced by some types of criminal Satanists. When the Satanists... Smears himself with blood, he believes he inherits the strength of the sacrificial victim. Other types of Satanists drink the blood of the victim out of a chalice like Christian strict wine. This serves the same purpose as smearing blood on the skin. Animal sacrifices associated with criminal Satanism are relatively common and are well documented in the United States on the other hand of the literally thousands of human sacrifices that have been reported to law enforcement most do not stand up to close scrutiny since 1985 and he's writing this five or six years later uh, only about a dozen verifiable cases of human sacrifice have been documented in the United States in short human sacrifices are rare but they do occur Uh, and this runs contrary to the thing that you'll often cited supposedly by uh, that the FBI determined that there is no such thing as an occult murder or occult related murder that's not really what that report says I'm trying to remember (sighs) he's the guy that hangs out with John Doug or was hanging out with John Douglas I just can't there's a there's a specific agent's name he's a Kenneth Lanning the Lanning report if you actually read that you'll get a better idea it's much more balanced than the way it's usually presented but uh, I, I think you can see here that he, this author is saying that you know occult murders do occur but they're rare uh, one of the experts testifying for Damien Eccles said essentially the same thing that you know he didn't of all the many cases that he'd been involved in investigating, uh, talking to, I think he was a psychologist, perhaps, talking to uh, various suspects. He only knew of one that was actually a, a real, really occult-based. But they do occur. Uh, tiny, infinitesimal number of the many, many murders that occur in the United States in a year would be occult in nature. Let's readily acknowledge that. Uh, now, if, if there's some sort of vent massive underground killing thousands of people a year there's there's talk of that all the time. There's certainly a lot of trafficking and uh white slavery and uh yeah. there's certainly networks of pedophiles that's how they you know not that I really want to know that much about it, but i did do, do know this much. They have networks. They have access to information that most of us wouldn't know how to get to and really wouldn't want to, but they're highly motivated and they all, they all, how, do they all know each other? I'm not sure that's exactly right, but they, many of them know how to get in contact with their fellow deviants. And similarly, you know, uh, If there is some sort of, it's not so far fetched that if there was some sort of organized occult crime ring, particularly a murder ring, in terms of sacrifice, it's not so far fetched that they would have a network of similar believers. But there's just not, I know of no real evidence that that's going on. There is evidence. You can find it, uh, there are individual practitioners. Uh, some of whom are clearly insane who uh, commit murders with occult motivations and I think if he this man were writing this today there are branches of particularly Caribbean magic uh, Latino magic uh, uh, that, that that you know there's quite a bit about human sacrifice and that whether they're actually sacrificing humans that's another question but it's it makes sense in that system at least um and and it makes sense in the black magic system as well but that's a whole different subject I'm not going to try to get into that Uh, I never see I don't follow Damien that closely but I've never seen him reference any of that in any kind of way He's he's kind of tied in with the uh, uh, Alistair Crowley school of thought, and not the the various you know Baron Samdi and the Legba type deities that uh, I'm I'm speaking of. Otherwise, magic time, places and times. Many occult. Uh, let me see. Blood here describes blood revel. The perpetrator smears the blood of the victim over large areas of his own body, especially the face, chest, and genitals. We don't have any evidence that this actually occurred in the crimes, could have, but uh, there's just no evidence of it. Um, Many occultists view certain places as magical or particularly effective for magical operations. Field officers searching for criminal occultists can take advantage of this belief because it drastically narrows the number of places that must be checked when seeking them out. The ultimate magical place, according to occultists, is a location that is, quote, neither here nor there, which is what I was speaking of earlier about the Robin Hood Hills. Robin Hood Hills is neither here nor there. The book says, a book is a classic example of such a place. It is neither land nor ocean. It is a borderline, a place between. Other examples of this kind of borderline would be forest clearings where meadows and trees meet, riverbanks where water and land meet, hilltops where earth and sky meet, cemeteries where life and death meet, and caves and mine shafts. Were above and below ground meat and there are a number of things meeting at the, uh, the Robin Hood Hills. You have a basically a, a field to be harv of of uh, crops to be harvested on one side, and you have a truck stop on the other. You have a very busy dual highway to the north and to the south you have uh, a subdivision uh, and, and apartments right there so you have you know multi-family dwellings you have these Mayflower apartments, which are really were apparently really terrible and they've been the place has been bulldozed. It was abandoned for a long time, it's now been bulldozed. But Damien lived there and some of the early, suspe- uh, some of the other potential early suspects in the crimes were, lived in those apartments. and they were in close proximity to the crime scene. Such borderlands are called crossroads. These places are traditionally seen not only as borderlines in the physical world, but as borderlines between the physical world and the magical world. Practitioners of natural magic believe that natural powers are stronger at crossroads and those who practice ceremonial magic believe that demons use crossroads as gateways to our world. I know some people would argue that the demons have done a pretty good job using the crossroads at West Memphis to let demons into the world. Jokingly or not jokingly, wherever there is a crossroads, there is a place where a magical ritual could take place. Wherever there is a crossroads, there is a place where an occult crime could occur. Crossroads also exist in time. The traditional witching hour, midnight, is a crossroads between two days. Sunsets and sunrises are also crosswords. crossroads. And uh, we mentioned that already is this is, I wasn't using the term crossroads, I was using the term liminal and some other things, but basically, uh, sundown sundown with the moon rising is a significant full moon rising It's a significant crossroads celestially an important point officers should remember however is that both criminal and non-criminal occultists believe in the crosswords concept both criminal and non-criminal rituals are held at crossroads. The phase of the moon often dictates when a magical operation should take place at a crossroads. Constructive magic is done when the moon is waxing, headed from new to full. And that—that that is when, that's exactly, you know, there was a waxing full moon that night. That's exactly when, uh that's exactly what was going on in the skies when these murders were being committed. It's hard to see anything constructive going on there. Uh, From our standpoint but maybe from Damien's standpoint maybe it was it was a constructive act. He's building he's making something, building something, connecting with something, obtaining power for something It doesn't seem unlikely that that is at least part of what was going on at this crime scene. Obviously, we had three drunken teenagers who performed a a bullying act. And if anybody who wants to say this was just three drunken kids who got carried away with with bullying, I'm not really going to argue the point because that is what Jesse Miskelly describes. Damien also describes it when he talks to police, not uh, talks to police, he says it's a thrill kill. He says Satanists may be involved and he says that revenge may be a factor. The revenge aspect of it is something he mentions that I don't really have a good explanation for. I think there are a number of possible explanations, but uh, I'm anything I say beyond that is purely speculative, and honestly, there's some stuff I've seen thrown around along those lines that was just almost pure fantasy, but he does say it. Destructive magic is done when the moon is waning, headed from full toward new. Full and new moons are mag- magically neutral and either destructive or constructive magic can be done on such days. And I'm going to end the chapter there. That's enough from a that's enough occult crime for one evening or morning depending on when you're listening to this. Anyway, this is Gary Meese again. I'm the author of three books on the West Memphis Three case, Blood on Black, Where the Monsters Go, and The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Uh, I have some... I was employed by newspapers as a journalist for almost exactly 40 years. And I I'm I I am retired. I am you know, which makes me quite old, I suppose. Uh and uh but I still do some writing and you know, I'm not really involved heavily in looking to any other crimes at this point. I was doing some of that for a while and I just decided that I would rather occupy my time and mind and spirit with other things that are better. <laughs> You know, I don't want to spend. I don't want to spend the rest of my life looking into horrendous crimes. If I was making a fortune doing that, it would be one thing, but that's not the case, unfortunately. Um, and uh, those books are available on Amazon and Kindle and print format. Um, I mentioned that you know, if you're interested in. Looking, listening to other podcasts on this. William Ramsey has done quite a bit of podcasting and so forth on the West Memphis 3 case. Ed Opperman has. Roberta Glass is very, I've done some interviews with Roberta Glass. She's very solid. Uh, Joshua Diaz uh, has a podcast uh, that you can find on YouTube uh, called The Lab that has a uh, He's gotten into the West Memphis Three case fairly recently and has had several episodes, including an interview with Terry Hobbs. Just worth listening to. Um, anyway, I'm going to wish you all of you well. Um, hope you're having a good summer. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.